Welcome to an episode of Weekly Weights. We lift weights and we are mates. On the weekend, we go on dates. Weekly Weights, Tim and Buddy. Weekly Weights with Alex and Will. Welcome to Weekly Weights. This is episode number 46. I'm Will Berkman. With me, as always, is Alex Hayes. Hello. And today's episode, we're going to talk about, we've called it random training stuff, um, but it's actually, it's a bit of a spin-off because a bit of a theme of our discussions over the past few weeks has been that you can sort of take training inspiration from lots of places and meld it together and recontextualize it and get something valuable back. So we were kind of just having a chat during the week and I was saying, you know, hey, there's a whole bunch of random crap that I do, probably two main things that are actually useful and then a few other things that are just fun that I do where, you know, I got them from some weird context and have thought, hey, there's there's actually something of value to this. And I know Alex has done a few things that are the same. And probably every coach that's been lifting for a while themselves or has been exposed to a number of mentors has taken bits and bobs from everybody. And you become this sort of amalgamation of all the information that you've been exposed to and put to use. So we thought today we'd sort of just chat through a bit of that stuff, have some, have some bants about training and, yeah, just see where it takes us. I've said I've said one word this whole podcast and you said like 200 now. Yeah, but we're only a minute in. So by the end of the podcast, it'll be probably 2 million to 5. <laughs> um, exactly how it should be. <laughs> I'm sure the people are glad to have me back. Actually, shout out quickly Matt Bartholomew, who I thought was a pretty good podcast host when he was on. He was plainly prepared, but I also felt that he was almost hosting you for a while. How do you feel about that? Yeah, I asked him a question and then he'd like turn it around and ask me a question. Well, the real question <laughs> yeah, is yeah. why you're asking that question. <laughs> yeah. Um, in fact, a few points of order before we get going. We had some reviews in December. We'll start with this um, Would You Rather. So okay. shout out to Mitch Ronan for, oh, Mitch Ronan for wanting to bring back Fat Burke because I've been wanting this for a while. <laughs> <laughs> he says, this was on my Q&A today on Instagram. Would you rather fight one Burke-sized Digby or 100 Digby-sized Burks? So, if to the uninitiated, Digby is my French bulldog who, due to a pretty severe bout of meningitis when he was younger, is, like, definitely clinically retarded. <laughs> <laughs> Poor little guy. Poor Digs. But I would definitely fight one Burke-sized Digby. Oh, 100%. Just, like, a big, slow, <laughs> like, spastic... <laughs> Uh, can you just imagine how annoying a hundred of me ganging up on you would be as well? Yeah. Not necessarily from a fighting perspective, just the trash talk. And Digby, yeah, and Digby's like not tiny. He's like fifteen kilos, so yeah, he's pretty fat. Eh? Yeah, that's probably why Mitch likes him so much. <laughs> he's a full chubby chaser. Seems fair. All right, that's number one point of order. Not a very important one. On on <laughs> on the topic of Digby, we did get the review on the twenty eighth of December from scary to her friends saying definitely not enough jim doggo content that review was titled ace and digby ep i presume they mean an episode talking entirely about the dogs well so far you've had your wish granted and number two was this one from the 21st of december 2018 alex do you want to read this bottom one great commentary good balance between banter and productive discussion glad that it's audio only the ongoing hate for sumo is starting to get me who submitted that one? Five Trong. Who's that? I don't know. <laughs> All right. And one more point of order, because I've decided um, unofficially 
that if you are just friendly and flattering enough to me, I will expose you on the podcast. So Quang Fitness, that's K-U-A-N-G Fitness on Instagram, said to me in a message, love you and Alex's knowledge. Need more people like you guys in the industry. Thank you very much, Quang Fitness. I love you too. I don't love your grammar, um, but I appreciate the feedback. So yeah, guys, send us nice messages or leave us reviews and we'll start reading them out again. And if we ever get merch, we'll send you merch. How What's happening with merch? Yeah, we might do some... We've been talking about it for a while. I've got a lot of projects in the pipeline that I'm not really doing much with right now. Merch is middle of the list. <laughs> so we'll get on to merch. We have the designs. It's really just getting it done. Maybe we can talk to Connor about teeing the shirts up because we have the designs, hey? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Anyway, on to today's discussion. Um, random training things. Alex, you wrote four words in preparation for this. I'm really keen to hear them. What are they? <laughs> <laughs> I think the first thing that jumps to mind is um, AMRAPs. So when I first, well, when we first got into powerlifting, AMRAPs were huge in like programming for the main lifts. Like we'd see this a lot, like two by five, then an AMRAP, um, or AMRAPs for testing, and then you know use that AMRAP as a gauge for where your max is now, and then program off that yeah. type of thing. Um, I think I first saw this with. Um, Ben Escrow and Lane Norton and those guys from Outwork. Ben Escrow? I haven't heard of his name in so long. What's yeah, he doing? I don't know. Mm. He owns the Nerva Nutrition, right? Oh, really? I think so. Oh, okay, that's pretty cool. Him and Ryan Doris. Is that right? I don't know. I might be completely wrong. One of my clients used to get coached by Ryan Doris. Oh, really? Yeah, that's all I got to say on that. Yeah, carry on. <laughs> cool. He's now my client. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go on. Um, yeah, so we used to see that as a use of programming for the main lifts and I think that I've kind of taken that idea and used it towards more accessory stuff like mm. in particular push-ups at the end of a session yeah. like just to get a nice little pump at the end like 2 by 15 and then one max one max set or like a dumbbell bench and I use it as like the I will flat load the the weight for four weeks and I'll use the same sets before the AMRAP and then I'll use the AMRAP as like the progression set yeah, so like, like let's say it would be like, let's say I'd give you, Will, like two sets of 10 on dumbbell press at like 20 kilos because you're weak. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then one AMRAP I afterwards. can actually dumbbell press quite a lot because I just don't load my pecs. I basically tape press it. You know, yeah. just let my hands fall in towards my midline and use my triceps instead. Is that what you were doing with Rowan the other day? So yeah. They were just dumbbell yeah, presses, I'm right? Yeah, I'm going to get onto that. press. <laughs> I'm going to get onto that. That's one of my tricep mechanical drop sets. <laughs> um, They're mad. Yeah. yeah, so like it might be like two sets of 10 at whatever load and then one AMRAP with the same load. And then the idea is to beat your AMRAP set every week. So yeah. like the progression is in the AMRAP, not in the load or not in the working sets. So why do you why do you find that to be more useful um, doing that type of thing with accessory work than the main lift? Well, I think when you take the main lift too close to failure, you, your technique will break down a lot and you're teaching yourself bad habits. It's something that we've spoken about a lot mm. that we want to always keep a few reps in the tank with our main lifts, particularly when we're doing higher reps Yeah. because um, we want that movement pattern to be fresh. And also, you're going to be using a heavier load with the, the main lift, so you're going to be at a greater risk of injury when your technique does break down. And I think it's just... The the reason I use them for accessories is just a little bit of fun, like at the end of a session. Like, you know, three tens is boring, but if you do two tens and an AMRAP, it adds a little bit of spice to it, a little bit of flavor, something to look forward to. Yeah, I think AMRAPs, like, we've spoken about them on the podcast in a number of episodes and why for main lifts they mightn't be the best idea and particularly if you're using them as a progression indicator unless you've got some like you've got some sort of very serious bounds around how you use them that might be a problem 
Yeah. But I think they probably get unfairly knocked in other contexts because one of the good things, like most of the time when we're doing accessory work, we're doing it. We're doing it for some some sort of mixture of like either trying to shore up a technical weakness or hypertrophy a body part that is like specific to the powerlifts. Unless it's like super far removed from the powerlifts and it's just like general health stuff to keep you moving nicely. But presuming it's like general hypertrophy and strength, there's something to be said for actually relatively high effort sets because you know for a given training dose, the closer to failure it is, usually the more adaptation you'll stimulate. Um, or you'll get more effective reps in, I guess, per set if they're closer to failure. So it's a good way of actually regulating effort and getting people to actually make sure that their accessories are contributing something without having you actually having to prescribe heaps and heaps and heaps of work in accessories. Um, something I've done that's kind of similar to what you said um, with accessory work is to flat load load across, um, across a number of weeks and write like three sets to you know, X distance from failure as well so rather than it being an amrap i'll say a good example would be you know say a pull-up and i'm going to get onto some pull-up progressions i've used later good example might be a pull-up i might say do three body weight sets of pull-up stopping three reps from failure and then each week try and beat the total number of reps or i might increase the proximity to failure as well hoping that that'll increase the total number of reps they do and again that's just a way of regulating effort without me necessarily having to prescribe a load increase because oftentimes as well on accessory exercises it's hard to increase load like week by week unless you start very sub-maximal or you write in some type of like double progression or short linear progression you know yeah we can get into how we use rpe later um if you want as well yeah versus, we? do you want to do that now uh well you got more to say on this uh on amraps no um well, i was just gonna list off some exercises that i do use it for and i find it useful for yeah go um push-ups dumbbell pressing of any of anything mm-hmm pull-ups, chin-ups, um, leg press, leg extension, leg curl. Pretty, pretty much those. I was going to say, um, I've got theories about why it would be good on a lot of them. So things like push-ups, most people who are training for powerlifting, unless maybe less so for women and particularly beginner women or like very heavyweight women, but most people can do a lot of push-ups. So you probably get, like you're going to end up a long way from failure if you just pick an arbitrary number. Yeah. Um, so that sort of stops people well that would be like the push up would be like the last exercise after two pressing movements so you're already pretty fatigued in your chest and shoulders and um, arms sure so it might be like two sets of 20 and then one AMRAP and you might get like 40 (laughs) that's a lot but yeah I mean I remember JP gave that to me he gave me one by 20 and then one by AMRAP and I think I got like 78 or something in the first week and he was like oh (laughs) shout out JP for being a fucking hypocrite because one of the benefits that I have of coaching a few good coaches is that I get to ask them their opinion on stuff. And I asked him at one stage, what do you reckon about giving people push-ups as general pressing general pressing work um, that's yeah, pretty far removed from the bench press? And he said, I don't really see much value in it for most people. So he's, even though I coach him, he's literally trying to trick me out of the game so that he can get more clients himself. What a dog. What an asshole. Um, so push-ups is to stop people bitching it. And leg press... And leg extension, leg curls, Similarly. I reckon, fall in the same. Similarly, yeah, because yeah. people will try and, like, they'll do 10. And, you know, the RPE on that stuff is hard to gauge. Oh, big time. Um, You might think you're at nine, and if someone was there staying next to you, like, if you had a trainer with you, pushing you through, you could probably do another five, six, or seven, eight reps or whatever. Mm. So if you really do, like, set that AMRAP, um, you will you will push yourself, and you will get more out of that set. 
Yeah, oftentimes when I'm coaching people in person for exercises like that, on my spreadsheet, it'll say like three sets of six to 10. And I always tell them we're doing 10 this set. And then when they're like actually approaching failure and they're getting to within the reps and reserve target, I say, okay, we'll cut it there. And they'll stop at eight. But that's the only way to get an honest appraisal from people. Because like as an anecdote, for instance, this isn't a leg press, it's a pendulum squat, but very similar. One of my clients did a 10RM testing on pendulum squat as part of a seminar recently. And he squatted, he did like 50 kilos on the pendulum for 10. And he said it was really hard. Um, but like true failure and I was making him do 10s on the pendulum squat at 35 so 70% of his 10 RM I mean bearing in mind that the machine person complex isn't entirely dictated by the load on the thingy but it's a significant load reduction you should be able to do 10 and he was calling him he was calling it failure at eight when it just plainly wasn't you know had I put a gun to his head he probably would have done 15 plus yeah another way to look at that is like if you're if you're with a person with a client doing exercise that is kind of just you just kind of do it like you just move the machine yeah um if you say like all right like let's get to 10 and then you get to 10 you go okay two more they can always do two more and then you go okay two more yeah they can always get an extra two an extra two an extra two and yeah. then if, if you if you give them that amrap and you say like you know go to failure like go until you miss yeah they will actually really push that set yeah so i think i can i see why that's useful and then with something like a dumbbell press I presume it's because you're not as concerned by small technical errors as you are with the bench press, but it's still a way of ensuring a couple of high effort sets, right? Yeah, so long as the like technique is there, the range of motion is full, yeah, then it's fine. Um, I think it can be hard to progress with dumbbell bench, like you know, the next increments are often two and a half kilos, mm. which if you're pressing twenty is ten percent. Yeah, so is, that's a lot. Like that's a big jump just to take a. Um, each week you're going to run out of progression very quickly yeah so often something i've done with accessory exercises to circumvent that is to write like i said a sort of short linear progression across four weeks where i might tell somebody to aim for like three sets of 12 with three reps in reserve on the first week and then next week do like three sets of 10 and then the next week three sets of eight with two reps in reserve and then the last week three sets of six to eight like close to failure or something and that ensures that they can move up in the successive dumbbells and get some quality work in but even then i still run into the same issues where like they might not actually be as close to failure as they would estimate um what's the downside though in your mind of like potentially having people take accessories closer to failure yeah that injury risk and i guess the extra fatigue but you know if, if you choose an exercise that's relatively low demand and low like fatigue per rep you should be okay yeah i think so but it is something worth noting like i know there are some there are some powerlifters who follow a more like power buildy approach who would have say you know five sets of a main lift and then 20 sets of accessories and were all of them to finish with an amrap then i think the cumulative fatigue would get too high whereas when you write programs for instance when you were coaching me i reckon we had one less exercise slot pretty much every day than i would normally do and on many of the accessories i would have like three sets where i would otherwise have four so the total volume is lowish, but the actual execution demands were higher, you know? Yeah. So you've got to balance the stresses if you're going to do that type of thing. Yeah, it might be like one or two exercises per week. Yeah, exactly. Like it's every, not a, yeah, every second session you might do one and wrap set. Um, spoiler alert, we're in discussions with Eric Helms to get him on um, onto the podcast, hopefully recording next Saturday. Yeah, he should be episode 48. Yeah, should be. 
Um, that's another one that we're going to leave hanging, just like our follow-up interview with Wilkes. That's still <laughs> that's still in the works. Um, yeah, but yeah, weeks ago. yeah, we're hoping to get um, hoping to get Rob, on, not Rob. <laughs> yeah, hoping to get Rob eventually. Hoping to get Eric on because we want to talk about auto regulation and um, you know where AMRAPs have been used in the main lifts um, as an indicator of progression, or not an indicator of progression, I should say as an indicator of performance that informs how you progress on the ensuing weeks. Um, that all ties into some of his research on order regulation, which we'd like to dive into. And there are some systems that people have used effectively for that, but I don't necessarily think appropriating them to powerlifting are great. So we'll probably interrogate those ideas with him and get an expert opinion. Um, we were going to talk about RPE. Yeah, do you want to go into RPE now? Yeah, shoot. So again, similarly with AMRAPs, RPE is often used on the main lifts. And it can be hard to pre-predict before the set starts. Pre-predict. That's the most redundant repetition of yourself saying the same thing over again in repetition. <laughs> Shut the fuck up. Redundantly. That well, you have heard. to predict an RPE. Yeah. But usually going into a session, you will want to pre-predict what that RPE is going to be. So that's not... That's you got to predict your prediction. That's, yeah, that's exactly I right. predict that I will predict. That's <laughs> actually, I reckon pre-prediction is a thing. So I'm driving to the gym. And I think I got to squat one eight. I got to squat like I got to squat something for eight at RPE eight. And on the way to the gym, I go when I start my warm ups. I predict that I will predict my RPE to be eight at one eighty for eight. That's a pre prediction because I'm predicting my prediction. What do you think of that? Hundred percent. Yeah, that's you, totally. A but thing. when you go into the session, you think like, okay, I've got to triple at eight. Yeah. Which is anything, because eight is everything. <laughs> yeah, literally anything is an eight. Um, and you're going to want to hit that number regardless of how you feel. And I think that that can be kind of poorly used by a lot of people. And I actually don't trust my lifters at all because I know myself that I can't get that prediction right when I use the RPE scale. Yeah. I also think it's lazy. I think it's lazy programming too. Like do, oh. do a single at eight and then three fives at... 15% less it's like you know anyone can write that it's it's not really helpful and you're going to do your 8 at whatever single you want to do anyway so it's like why don't you tell them exactly what you want them to do type of thing anyway yeah I, I sort of hold with that thingy I also sort of don't because I think a lot of the skill with RPE programming is writing the contours of the programming so that there are peaks and troughs in stress of course where you should be if you presume somebody's not an idiot with RPE, you should be able to predict the sessions that they actually perform well on and you should be able to bring them to a peak. Like if you do week one, a single at eight, 15% lighter, three sets of four, week two, single at eight, 10% lighter, three sets of three, and then you have a week that's more like peaky where you go like, you know, single at seven, single at eight, single at nine, drop 20%, three threes, and then the next week's a testing or something, you might like, you would be able to predict the contours of their performance across that, right? Yeah, for sure. It's just like any program you're going to have those highs and lows, right? Yeah, but all you do is write numbers in there and then you assess the RPE for the person and then change it a bit. Yeah, that's right. That's coaching. Exactly. <laughs> that's what they're paying you for. Yeah. But the, I think the RPE, RPE can be bad for the main lifts because it can be hard to predict what you are capable of, of and what the coach sort of wants. Yeah, and also I think a lot of the productive work, this is something we've harped on about a lot, a lot of the productive work probably falls outside of the RPE ranges that people think of. Like, as in, I've done heaps of sessions where I've done things that are an objective RPE 5, but they've actually helped me build a lot of strength because I reinforce technique and stuff. And you have to start making arbitrary distinctions about where is failure, what is, like, what's a true RPE? Is an RPE, I literally couldn't do another rep with a gun to my head. Like, is that an RPE 10? 
whereas an RPE 10, I couldn't execute another rep with the perfect intent and perfect perfect technique. And then how do you sort of monitor training stress for the variances within that, you know? Yeah, I think that if the parameters are set correctly before beforehand and there's the communication between coach and lifter, it can be done well. Mm. But I don't like to use it for the reasons I said earlier. But I do use RPE for accessories. So just like you mentioned earlier, you use reps and reserve for your accessories and it might go from three to two to one mm. across three weeks. I will use something similar to that. And the reason for that is so that we can add load to the bar or to the dumbbell or whatever the implement is um, as the weeks go on to ensure that there is some sort of progression. Yeah. And I think RPE in accessories also works well because in your main lifts, like we tend to have a planned progression. We deviate from it if we see like an indicator that we have to, um, but you'll have peaks and troughs in preparedness and that's why we program the way we do. But for accessories, you sort of just want like a bunch of work in the productive zone. And by giving RPE, you sort of, you guide people so that the work's hard enough, but not too hard because all it's meant to do is complement the main work that you do. So you should be able to build in some more leeway. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I think that's cool. I, I do sometimes use RPE with main lifts, but I tend to do it with bounds. So, and I don't tend to do it with lifters that are less advanced or that I think are hot-headed. So an example, so Chrissy, for instance, um, who is competing next weekend and looks like she'll, she'll probably PB her bench. Um, she, she, was, she had prescribed top singles on bench, so her heaviest work was actually prescribed. And then her rep work, because I wanted to ensure the quality of it was good. I gave her some um, RPE, RIR. Like I gave her reps and reserve guidelines and then a, a weight range and basically said to her, hey, like, you know, depending on how you're feeling on the day and how your top singles move, pick a weight in this range. And I don't mind you moving up and down during the sets. I just want you to get quality work in this reps and reserve range. And she's, she's composed enough and is also surrounded by enough good coaches to make good decisions like that. I've done a similar thing with JP, both with his bench, which is going well at the moment, um, which is crazy. There must be a blue moon. Um, Yours will do well soon then. <laughs> oh, maybe. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, wait for Halley's Comet. Um, yeah, both with his bench, which is doing well, and with his sumo deadlifts as well, because yeah, sumo deadlifts, similar thing to Krusey. He's got the prescribed heavier work, and then I've now started giving him some, rain, some intensity ranges to do his back off work. Because a trend I've seen with him is like his top set performance is relatively predictable based on how his week has been going. Um, unless he just walks in feeling shit on the day, like I, you can usually see. But his back off work can be a bit more up and down. So to sort of, to allow for those variations within intra-session fatigue, I've given him a range of weights and an RPE target. And I think that just reduces a bit of the variability that you would otherwise get if I just said, yeah, do a couple of singles and then fives at RPE eight, like... You know, God only knows what would happen. His fives would probably end up heavier than my singles that I've given him half the time. You know? Yeah, for yeah. sure. And we see this like, you know, if you follow any lifters on on Instagram who use RPE, how often they'll like say something with an eight or a seven, and you look at it, and you're like, bro, like, come on, be real, like, be honest with yourself. And like, that's the that's the problem with it is that people aren't honest with themselves. Yeah, I I think it's both that you're not honest with yourself and that it's actually hard to reconcile the subjective and or basically actually then yeah it's the subjective and objective measures of how things go because like for instance i had a client this morning shout out tim squad of 195 immediately afterwards i said how was that and he was like oh it was pretty hard 
Then I showed him the footage and it actually moved pretty well. That's a 15 kilo PB for him. Actually moved pretty well on the footage and suddenly he was cheating. He was like, oh, that moved really well. So his perception has been immediately influenced by what he saw on the camera. And then he said, how much was that? Because he didn't even know it was his top set. And I said it was 195. And then he was G'd again and thought, fuck, that was piss easy. Like, I could do heaps more. But he's had all his influences alter his perception. And I'm not sure which one of them is the truest because everything always feels slower than it looks on camera. Um, and I'm not sure, probably partly because I don't use RPE a huge lot as a coach, I'm not sure which of them would be my truest indicator of performance. Like, if somebody says something actually felt genuinely hard, even if it moved well, a lot of the time I would say that's actually important because if I want their execution to stay good, I'm not going to make it arbitrarily harder, you know, unless I think they're just being a real softy about it. But you almost made the point there, everything always looks easier than it feels. Yeah, I did Yet when you, when you see people use RPE, it's almost like it's the opposite. Yeah, it looks harder. It than looks harder than they say yeah, that it feels. So that's you get how what I mean? suck at it. That's right. That's <laughs> yeah. the problem. Yeah, no, I agree with you there. I still do get people to give me RPEs, and I know you do. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, how many more? Yeah, yeah, but that's asking someone how did that feel. Like, that's yeah. asking for feedback on how things were. Well, that's literally what RPE stands for. It's rate of I photographic examination. <laughs> Evidence. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa, Holy shout out Jesus. Sydney weather. <laughs> 25 minutes late, but the rains have come. Apple weather said at 2 o'clock, there was a 100% chance of rain. It's 2.25, we've just started getting sprinkles. I think it was. So, I think it's been raining for about fifteen minutes. You reckon? We just we just got thunder. Oh, okay, cool. Well, I'm hoping the ghost of Steve Jobs is up there controlling the weather <laughs> appropriately. Um, do you want to do your next thingy, and no, then no, we're gonna have go. a break? And no, no, you go. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna save my favorite one for after the break. What's your favorite one? The pull up stuff. Okay, because it's a story about spoiler me. alert. It's pull ups. Oh yeah, wow. Who cares? <laughs> um, no. Okay, so. So something that I have begun appropriating um, from from my brief stint in weightlifting is lift complexes, and it's I know that's something that's been done in powerlifting, particularly under Russian coaches and stuff, quite a bit. But when I was when I was doing weightlifting, we would often do it's like a mechanical drop set, only with like much more technically demanding lifts. We would do something like what would be an example? Um, you might do a push press into a um or maybe a strict press into a push press into a split jerk or something so you'd be getting pressing volume in but you would progress from the one that you can handle the least load to the most load as you got more fatigued um that would be one example of yeah a way to get pressing volume so the that would probably be the purpose of that one's prescription i'm not a weightlifting coach if i say something stupid sorry um but then other ones that we might do would be something like a power snatch into a snatch into a snatch pull. Um, again, using the same barbell. So you do one rep of each or like two power snatches, one full snatch, three snatch pulls or something like that. Um, and that whole complex would be called one rep. And you would use that to have a couple of technical foci that you then bring together towards one skill, right? Or you might even do like, you know, two snatch pulls, one power snatch, one full snatch, something like that. But the complexes were always constructed in a way that there was a purpose to the execution of the lifts in combination, and they were always closely related, and the idea was to develop technical skill while being efficient, because otherwise you'd have people doing like three or four exercises at once, or not three or four exercises at once, three or four exercises in succession and just taking forever. Um, and when I got when I started coaching powerlifting, um, actually I didn't even think about this when I started coaching powerlifting, I really started thinking about it when I started 
um, talking to Alex more about coaching powerlifting and thinking about the importance of developing technique, um, I started thinking if we're going to use lifts for technical cueing, you probably also want to sometimes have some immediate exposure to the comp variation close to it so you can sort of transfer the skill that you're working on into the comp environment. So the simplest, the simplest um, like complex that anybody does in powerlifting and everyone does this is like bench press where you might start with a pause bench press and then go into touch and go. That's less of a technically based one, but you're actually doing two exercises in one set there in my opinion. But the way I started... Um, the way I started thinking about it was something like, you know, doing two paused deadlifts to practice getting somebody's positioning off the floor at mid-shin correct and then one full deadlift. Or, you know, you could do any number of deadlift variations. Or one that I've used with a couple of people recently was um, was doing two paused squats and then one full squat or, you know, two tempo squats, one normal squat where I'm practicing something about their positioning or something about their descent and then saying, okay, you know, practice that a couple of times in this slower easier environment and then let's translate it into the full lift and i think that's actually got quite a bit of value and it's probably not done by as many powerlifting coaches as you would expect alex what do you think of that yeah um i don't use complexes in the same way that you do but i do use a similar content which was going to be my next point which is how i use tempo work mm. and often i'll use tempo work um before the main lift um in order to just grease the movement pattern, teach the right habits, particularly with a squat, um, the bracing habits, the midfoot pressure, um, those things in the tempo squat to carry into their main squat, uh, which would be straight after it. But I don't use the... the um, <laughs> I don't use the complexes in the way that you do. Will was just moving the fan. Yeah, it's... It, even though it's stormy, it's really hot. Um, probably some orographic rainfall happening, Alex holographic rainfall that's where it's not really there <laughs> it's, just, it's just a light show um yeah sorry what were you saying so you don't really use it in the same way but you still do follow the tempo squats with the normal squats yeah so i'll yeah. use like a an exercise to reinforce something and then i'll use the main lift to sort of teach what we've learned in that harder variation in an easier environment yeah that makes sense and it's the same it's the same thinking the important thing when using complexes is that you can't be so fatigued from the prior exercise in the complex that your execution of the main lift suffers. Yeah. So there's like a relatively narrow loading window where it tends to work. You want it to be like, so particularly if you're doing it for technique. So a good example with say the pause squat into normal squat thing. Um, there was, Chrissy is about a 130, 135 kilo squatter. And she was doing something like between 85 and 95 for one to two pause squats followed by one to two normal squats so that's a lot of work in like the 65 to 70 ish percent range that make off the top of your head that's about 70 percent how many 85 kilos 85 to 95 and then i think she got up to 100 for one paused one normal so that's that's in that's about 70 that's about 70 70 so so it was relatively light because you want the execution of everything to be good and you've got to take into account the cumulative fatigue um but yeah, that was that was something that I think weightlifters do intelligently that if you think of powerlifting as coaching the technique of the lifts, you can recontextualize really well. Holy so, shit, it is really pouring. Yeah, it's absolutely... Pouring knowledge in your ears. <laughs> yeah, we are making it rain here at Weekly Weights this <laughs> week. Making it rain facts, son. <laughs> um, do, you, do you want to take a quick break? Think of some more facts to rain. 
and then come right back. It's been... Did you want to just talk about tempo work now while we're like already on it? Oh, yeah, 100%. You got more to say. Um, yeah, so where did where did you first see tempo squats used in powerlifting? A tempo, tempo squat, tempo bench. You know, actually, I've got to start by saying tempo work is something I changed my mind on completely because it required a paradigm shift in the way I thought about powerlifting because I knew that arbitrarily slow lifting tempos were probably not beneficial for size and strength gains, particularly for strength gains on the concentric portion of the lift because you like you produce less force. So I was like, that's dumb. When I saw other people doing tempo work, I was like, what a waste of time. Who did you see it from initially? I don't want to call them out for being stupid. But now you think they're not but stupid. now I think they're smart. Tim Davies was one. Um, did, did a lot of tempo work, but I saw other coaches doing it as well. I saw trainers at Lift Performance Center doing it um, with an S&C background. So like um, Dan O'Neill. Yeah. Shout out Dan O'Neill, who when I get onto my elevator curls, he loved doing elevator curls with me. But like I saw people like that doing it and thought, that's not that smart. Um, but then when I started thinking, actually, you're trying, to, you're trying to engender a skill in someone and I'd learned about motor control and stuff at uni, I started to realize how important moving slowly was. But I think that was my first exposure was was I think Tim, Matt Stewart were doing it, and I think Bergner was doing it quite a lot. Um, all people whom I actually thought were quite smart, but I thought they were doing the wrong thing. Now I think they were doing the right thing quite often. And, yeah, um, our mates from Lyft, Dan, and so on. Yeah. Yeah, I think I saw it from Dan and Brad, um, but also from JP, and then more recently from Jamie and Charlie. Yeah. Um, initially the way I used it was like a separate exercise on its own so it would be like you know three sets of five tempo at you know some load roughly 50% yeah. 50 to 60% somewhere in there um, and then you move on to your other exercises Yeah. and I still do use it like that sometimes but only when the frequencies for that lift in particular is high enough that it warrants being on its own day Yeah. so like if someone is benching four times a week they might do one of their bench days as just tempo bench. Yep. But I think the way that I've shifted that is to use it, like I said before, before the main exposure. So it might just be two sets of five, two sets of four, two sets of three, something like that, just to ingrain the movement pattern and I guess just teach the right habits before going into the main lift. So like what I would do now, and I, I use this with squats more than anything, is um, two sets of three to five at somewhere between 40 and 50% like extremely light and then then they will do two or three more warm-ups to get to their main load yeah i've done actually exactly that as yeah. well recently with ned you remember ned big fella so oh, yeah. Guy? yeah so i've done exactly that type of stuff too and i think it's really smart for the same reason as why i like to think the complexes are smart you give somebody the skill you know slightly decontextualized then ask it to basically you give them like practice like you play straight after yeah so I think that's cool quick break yep weekly weights welcome back to episode 46 of weekly weights I'm Alex I'm with the re-intro <laughs> yeah <laughs> we're talking about random stuff we do in training where we learn it from and how we use it now yep what do you got for me Will very random Sometimes just spontaneously stop, pat my head and rub my tummy at the same time. What do you reckon? In between sets? Like <laughs> while you've got a bar on your back? I was going to say, yeah, I could do it at any time. 
particularly easy when safety bar squatting, very hard when barbell squatting, and very dangerous when bench pressing. <laughs> speaking of speaking of doing stuff while safety bar squatting, you know, you know Johnny from um, Squad? Yeah. English guy? Yeah. He was doing safety bar the other day, and then his nose started itching. He was like halfway through his set. Yeah. He literally stopped and started scratching his nose. <laughs> so this is why you need your accessories taking a failure because so he's got a main lift where he's literally taking a break in the middle of it oh man um okay more serious random things i do this isn't entirely random um this was okay many of the people know that i used to be fat and um when when i was fat i couldn't do many pull-ups but right at that time, I was also starting reading a lot about strength training and I was very interested in it. And pull-ups, Alex, do you remember when pull-ups were considered like almost like the fourth big lift, like being able to do heavy-weighted pull-ups or doing lots of pull-ups was considered like a really important sign of strength. And there was like Dan Baker, who's an S&C coach who worked with the Broncos and stuff for a while. He, um, he thought there was a really strong correlation between pull-up, like weighted pull-up ability or pull-up strength ratio to body weight and running speed and all that stuff. No, I didn't see that stuff, but I always thought of the fourth lift as the overhead press. Well, overhead like just press like when, just like in Wendler and stuff. Yeah, I gave up on that yonks ago. I can't even get my bench good. I don't want to take on another press. Maybe um, because your shoulders don't move well because you don't do overhead press. Yeah, maybe. Um, but thing is, shout out Jamie for <laughs> some reaching patterns. Yeah. Um, uh, no, um, Wendler's a good person though. Like Wendler's a. Well, I don't know if he's a good person. No, he's a good person to bring up though in this discussion because he, for instance, for a while was saying like you should you should do pull-ups between every set and, you know, he was talking about the two-to-one push-pull ratio and then there were heaps of people talking about how pull-ups are important because, you know, if you do a proper like chest-to-bar pull-up, you pull your shoulders into depression and your um, T-spine into extension and all this stuff that was supposedly good posture, which Jamie's come on the podcast to talk about why getting out of those postures is important too but they are important postures for things like squatting and benching a lot and you know you do that and you get appropriate external rotation of the shoulder and you open up you you open up the shoulder to be strong or so the thinking went so it was really important to me to be able to do pull-ups um and all these people that i respected in the fitness industry were talking about why getting your pull-up strength was good so I was then determined when I was losing weight to get better at pull-ups, but the problem was that because I was like 120 kilos, I could do two or three. Like I could actually do two or three when I was pretty fat, which is cool. Um, but yeah, I was coming from a pretty bad base of not being able to do pull-ups. And I went on the Elite FTS Q&A page. Um, I didn't actually ask a question, but there was a bloke called Harry Selko who used to answer questions on there. Don't know if he still does. And he was prescribing all these powerlifters who were like 300 to 400 pound powerlifters um, progressions to get themselves from being able to do like fuck all pull-ups to more. And so he would say to them, set a timer and every minute, just do one. If you Like if you can only do three or four right now, just do one every minute for 10 minutes and then keep that, you know, the next week, do two for the first few minutes and then one for the next and so on and so on and so on. And I read that and I thought, oh, you know, that could work. And then I saw I saw another couple of articles, and I wish I could remember who wrote them, talking about the difference between good and bad pull-ups. And they were talking about how, you know, most people as they approach failure in a pull-up, and you can, you can attest to this, Alex, most people as they get close to failure in a pull-up, instead of getting that extended T-spine, depressed shoulder, chest-to-bar, externally rotated posture, 
that supposedly we want, they sort of flex at the T-spine, internally rotate and hunch over. Almost shrug as well, yeah. Yeah, and I think the internal rotation is probably to shorten the lat a little bit more, and I'm not really sure what's going on with the rest of it, but you lose that shoulder girdle position that you want. So I was seeing these other people say that, you know, if your pull-ups aren't perfect, they're not pull-ups. And, then, and I sort of thought, well, I can do a few pull-ups, maybe like three. And so I don't want to be doing pull-ups close to failure because that's bad. So why don't I try this on the minute thing? And I sort of started a progression like that. And I ended up progressing really intuitively from doing like 10 pull-ups, you know, one on the minute to 10 pull-ups, like two every minute on the minute. And then started just adding one rep to every set as I was going, like whenever I could. Um, and that actually was really similar as well to the, wish I could remember his name. Do you remember the guy who used to do super famous? I think it was the Paul, Paul Anderson deadlifting method. He did like eight sets of two with a weight and then he'd add a rep to one set each week over eight weeks and then increase the load when he hit eight sets of three. Do you remember that? I don't. Oh, okay. Well, that was also something that I'd tried with success with my deadlift in high school that I did literally that exact progression I was except not eight sets I was doing four or five sets of like three then I'd get to four and then when I could do that I'd add weight and go to two and then get to three then add weight and go two get to three and so on I did that starting at like 140 kilos and ended up deadlifting 210 for five sets of three when I was 17 so like it worked um, ooh, ooh. <laughs> can barely do that now <laughs> um, but yeah it was sort of this confluence of of people saying things where I was like, oh, I've done something similar to that. That worked. So I ended up doing that progression. Um, and then once I was doing 10 sets of five bodyweight pull-ups every minute on the minute, which took a reasonable amount of conditioning and also like eight months and plenty of weight loss, I then started repeating the same thing with weighted pull-ups. And there was a while when I was really skinny where I could do like eight or 10 weighted pull-ups with like 20 kilos between my legs. So I was like actually strong at them. And now... 10 bodyweight pull-ups is hard for me but um but yeah it was really effective and so that's something that i've then appropriated and used with my clients particularly for pull-ups when i get people who say they want to get their pull-ups better or people who are like wanting to just improve their relative strength and body composition and stuff i often use that i keep them a long way from failure on pull-ups i use it almost like a pseudo conditioning exercise make it go every minute on the minute and progress from very sub-maximal by adding volume initially and then adding sets each minute. So they might do eight sets of two every minute on the minute and progress to 12 sets of two and then go eight sets of three or whatever it happens to be and just add add stuff to keep things very submaximal and on short rests. Alex, you've done similar things. Yeah, I do. I have done it myself, but I never had your issue of like only being able to do one. So I've never done like singles. Ooh. <laughs> well, yeah, like I'm, you know, yeah. <laughs> I was the heaviest I've ever been. It was a fucking ninety kilos. So yeah, true. Um, yeah, when I first started doing pull ups, when I first started training, I weighed like sixty five, seventy kilos. Yeah, so I like that when I was like pull up, so like pull ups for me were like pretty cruisy. I could do like three sets of ten, like just from the start. Right. Um, and I'm actually probably worse at pull ups now than I was then because I'm so much heavier. But yeah. like for my own progression of pull ups, like JP will give me like. Usually just add a set a week. So it'll be like, I think I did eight by four or something last week. Yeah. On pull-ups. I think I got nine by four this week. Yeah. Um, so Pretty that kind sure of thing. sure he stole that from me doing that to him? Yeah, probably. And Typical. like I use that as well with, with people, especially people who are just starting out yeah. with their pull-ups. Like, you know, particularly girls. Like it might be 
do three doubles on the minute and then do four doubles and then do three threes and then do four threes or whatever the case is, whether you add a set or you add a rep or you, if you add, you know, a rep and it starts to get hard, then you might add, you might make it every 75 seconds or every 90 seconds or whatever. But yeah, that progression scheme, changing the timing or changing the reps, changing the sets is like a great way to, yeah, progress for a long, long time because there's so many things you can change. So something that I actually forgot to mention this, but this informed my sort of baseline template of how to do this was when I was, I think, 16 or 17 at high school, we had a run in the weights room where we had to do, it was called Escalating Density Training. It was written by, I'm pretty sure, Charles Staley, who definitely did a whole bunch of articles for T-Nation and things. And it was the same, it was the same concept. It was, you would do sets on the minute, but he did it with agonist, antagonist, supersets. And so we would have blocks where I would have to do, I was doing assisted pull-ups because I was chubby. Um, but you do like assisted pull-ups and then barbell overhead press on alternate minutes. So you'd go and it was like a 16-minute block. So you'd do like eight, eight threes or whatever. That's what they made us do at school. But a lot of original programs, 10 sets of three alternating. A lot of guys in Strongman do that kind of stuff. Yeah. Like it'll be like do farmers even minute and then like a, I don't know, some dead ball toss or something odd minute yeah they're conditioning workouts yeah and then the rest period is like the 40 seconds that you get after you finish well get this workout so i think at one stage it was i think it, i think we did alternating eights it could have been 10 minutes alternating um but i had overhead press and assisted pull-ups right and then i had deadlifts and split squats on alternating minutes right and then the load the load prescription was meant to be with your 10 rm so so at some stage I was meant to be doing like 10 sets of three every minute on the minute with a 10 RM deadlift interspersed with barbell Bulgarian split squats on alternating legs each minute as I went through. And like I was pretty overweight at the time. So it was really hard. But <laughs> but looking back at that, once I'd sort of had this success getting from not being able to do many pull-ups to quite a few, the sort of baseline template that I started running for myself and that I've used with other people is to get an approximation of their 10 RM. So if somebody can only do eight or 10 pull-ups body weight, then they do this body weight. If they can do 10 pull-ups with 10 kilos between their legs, start them with 10 kilos between their legs. And I would usually go um, first week, eight sets of three, next week, 10 sets of three, next week, 11 sets of three, next week, 12 sets of three. So you're sitting in that sort of 24 to 36 rep volume zone then you you might have a deload or something or you restart the progression with eight sets of four, 10 sets of four, 11 sets of four, 12 sets of four. And then the same thing for sets of five or you progress the load. But that way you only actually progress the intensity after you know somewhere between sort of six and 12 weeks of exposure to it. But you've had the volume increasing in sort of a wave-like fashion across the whole thing without them ever getting close to failure. And if you actually get to the point where you can do 10 sets of five every minute on the minute with a weight that was previously a 10 RM, you're definitely stronger. 100%. Yeah. And it's, How would you use this in anything other than the pull-ups? Well, that was the next part of this is once I'd had that success with pull-ups, I started appropriating it to deadlift training um, with nowhere near the same relative intensity because that's way too hard. But um, another guy who used to ride a bit on um, on Elite FTS was Steve, I want to say Pultinella. He might yeah, Pultinella, yeah. Yeah. Um, him and Matt Gary, also of USAPL fame, um, were writing about how they always train the deadlift with singles and that they would do like singles on the minute and stuff. And I, I thought that could work and I know you've done it and I've done it with clients way back in the day. But I also thought that if I was 
far enough from failure, I could get the benefits of like pretty much no failure proximity and lots of first reps by just doing them as clusters. So I I did start doing cluster deadlift training for myself and I've used it with clients. I now don't do it all the time. I sort of alternate clustered and straight set phases for a few other reasons. Um, but I started appropriating it for the deadlifts and doing similar progressions. But with the deadlifts, I instead of having volume increases, um, because I was almost always doing it with like a linear weight increase, I would have volume decreases. So I might start with a block of like 10 by three, every minute on the minute or close to at a very light weight, like 50%, um, 60% maybe. And then, you know, after three or four weeks of that in the deload, they might do 12 sets of two and then eight sets of two and then singles um, and the rest periods also lengthen. So I might start at 60 seconds for the first two blocks, then go to 75 and then 90 seconds and two minutes and things after that as well. Um, yeah, that's very similar to the way that I progressed through the EMOB deadlift as yeah. well. Starting with with triples, um, generally you'll lose a set each week. So yeah, it might go 10, 9, 8, 7 for four weeks. Yeah. And then the next block would start and you do doubles, 10, 9, 8, 7. And then you do singles, 10, 9, 8, 7 or something along those lines. So the first week is 30 reps and the last week is seven reps. Yeah. It's like a huge drop in um, volume over 12 weeks. Allows you to add a lot of load to the bar. Yeah, it allows you to add a lot of load to the bar. And a point that both Steve and Matt Gary um, made is that it gives you lots more chances at first reps. And particularly for people, like how many clients do you have who they do a first rep deadlift looks average and a second rep that looks good? Yeah, a lot. Heaps, right? Um, and although in some respects that probably means that doing more second reps will get you doing more good deadlifts. You actually need to learn the skill of being good at doing a first rep. 100%. So by giving them lots of sets, um, you get that practice. And yeah, because you stay far enough from failure, you should tend to get a higher aggregate quality of deadlift reps once they start nailing that skill than you would if you gave somebody... Like a 10 by 3 EMOM would be usually a similar load to what I might give somebody for like a three by eight or like a four by seven to eight or something. Um, maybe even lighter, but like you, but the quality of reps in the 10 by three EMOM provided their conditioning doesn't suck should be higher. Yep. Um, so in that respect, I think it's really beneficial. And because you're further from failure, you should get less interference with your other lower body work, particularly squatting. If you can program in that style. And then I reserve my closer to failure deadlift work for supplementary movements that are like load limited and specific to their weaknesses as well yeah. so so for me i was doing like paused rdls at the position of the floor close to failure for tens and stuff or like block pulls for sixes and eights that were still kind of sub max after that um after that work but i have a relatively high deadlift volume tolerance yeah yeah so you you'll use that emom as like just technical like just putting in that technical work like lots and lots of really good reps yeah. and then you'll hammer the weakness like later or later in the week or whatever the case is yeah and now that i probably don't quite hack as much deadlift work as i used to partly as a result of being stronger and you know partly because i like sleep less and work more than i used to um i don't do as much of the supplementary work but i still reserve my harder on a set-by-set -set basis work for the stuff that's less specific to the movement with the deadlift. And I think that's been really beneficial. But that that whole, like, that all that thinking actually came initially from the pull-up stuff that I'd done, which is kind of funny. Yeah, because I've seen... I mean, I got the idea initially from hearing Matt Gary talk about it. Um, and then I saw it 
by done by a few Australian coaches that we know, Bergner mm. and Joey yeah. in particular. Um, and they will actually push it a, l- a lot further than I would. Um, they'll they they would work up to like you know only doing deadlift singles twice a week, one light day, one heavy day, and the heavy days like eight singles or like an opener. Yeah, in fact, and and Joey's Joey Joey's, Joey will do like five singles like close to a second and like very difficult. Yeah, that's gnarly. Which is like much further than I would progress it, but you know we can see these sort of methods being used and being pushed quite far. Mm. I think. When I had my longest run of doing clustered deadlifts, I did end up deadlifting 10 singles at w- above what I ended up resolving to open um, at the end of at the end of it on 90 seconds. But the difference was I was on a bendy bar at Fitness First with bumpers, which made it so much easier. And I actually, um, I stopped that progression six weeks out from the competition with the intention of sort of trying to cruise in because I felt like I was in, in line for my deadlift goals at the time. I think if I were to do something like that leading into competition, I would almost certainly drop the clusters um, and go into straight sets leading into comp just so I could give somebody enough rest to facilitate performance or have the progression, like have the volume progression of the clusters drop right, right back. Not volume progression, sorry, total volume of the clusters drop right, right back in the last few weeks. I would never, I would never try and have somebody handling above and open up for clustered reps deliberately. I think that would be too hard. Something that I've done closer to comp, which is similar to what you just said, is um, using the the um, every minute on the minute after the main couple of top singles. Yeah. So it might be like two singles at you know eighty five to ninety percent, or ninety to ninety five percent, or whatever. Mm. Um, and then you know an extra ten singles, ten percent lighter. Yeah, or even more lighter. Yeah. For some people, yeah, yeah. that works great as well because you get that first rep practice. And because you've already done the hard work, you've sort of had it's they're like an activation set. You yeah, know, the ones after actually feel disproportionately hard because you've done the hard work. And that's something that Hanny did with me, um, in my Oceana prep. So my last my last block working with Hanny before I moved to JP. Mm. Um, my heaviest deadlift day of the whole prep before dropping two eighty five was three singles at two fifty. Yeah, and then ten singles at two twenty. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh I no, ten singles at two ten. So it was 250 and then 210. Yeah. Um, I think other lifts that you could use that for... Squats don't work very well. I've done squats on short rests actually ages ago. They don't work well because your time and setup takes too long and it's just delicate. And you, if you're rushing that stuff, you fuck up your squats. So don't do that. Yep. But, um, but lifts that have a reasonable amount of postural demand that you can set up relative, relatively quickly do work. So for instance, it actually does work quite well for things like overhead press particularly if you do have a large amount of sort of postural compensation as you approach failure, you could do things like that with it. But there's really a limited number of lifts that I think it's super appropriate for and deadlifts are just a really good one. Them and pull-ups. Dips, Dips as well. Yeah. <laughs> good time. Push-ups. Yeah. Um, something where you don't need, like something that re- requires little setup. So anything pressing other than dips and push-ups is probably a no because you have to get into position even an overhead press you have to get under the bar and walk it out that's an extra five seconds yeah um yeah probably body weight stuff works probably do it with like a, a pen lay row like a barbell row yeah you could do like it with a, a pen set of five walk away come back to five type of thing every 90 seconds or something yeah um while we're on oh it's not really clusters but but while we're on sort of alternate methods for prescribing sets and reps you mentioned total reps and that's something we've both done as well do you want to talk about that 
yeah so this this would be used for um, accessory work as well um, the idea of doing a certain number of reps for that exercises and making sure it progresses the total reps progress over time which yeah. is essentially what we're trying to do is increase the volume over time um, so this would be something like a generally a bodyweight exercise I like my go-to with this is my the two go-to exercises with this are pull-ups and glute ham raises yeah particularly when someone is new to glute ham raises or new to pull-ups and it might be like you start at you know 15 to 20 or like you know 15 then 18 then 21 then 24 and you're adding three reps a week and then the next block you might start in the week two and you'll end up where week five would have been in week four and then etc etc the trend in all these um because all this is is just different ways of getting people to do the same stuff yeah the trend in all these things we've spoken about so far has been sort of like that there's there's still sort of an inbuilt like wave like progression in all of them yeah so with the with like my short linear um phases for accessories like they back cycle and then they supersede where they went before or surpass i should say and same with this like so you'd back cycle, you'd go 15, 18, 21, 24, and then you'd start at 18 and try and get to 27 and so on. Yep. Yeah, the whole time. So you're still tracking volume and just progressing them like that. 100%, yeah. Are there any other contexts you'd use that in? Um, well, the way that I would prescribe it would be to ask the lifter then how many sets it took them. Yeah. So if they get if they say they have 15 and it took them five sets, they're doing an average of three sets, sorry, three reps per set, um, then I might not give them any straight sets for probably like five or six months until they can do a set of 10 on their own and they might get three eights or something like that. So um, as far as like other ways where that would be applicable, no, but that is kind of how it would be structured and you have to kind of, you have to get the information back from them. Yeah. And then you'd also have to put parameters around it like leave two reps in reserve each set. I was going to say that's exactly how I've done it. Um, So for things like pull-ups, if I have given people straight sets, I've done the, I write like accumulate X number of reps. And then, yeah, I'll say like how many reps in reserve. I think I spoke about that earlier. Um, another one that I, another one that I'll sometimes do um, is I'll give somebody a prescribed intensity for an exercise. And I've done this with the main lifts a little bit, not usually for power lifters, for general strength people. Um, and then say to accumulate X number of reps and either limit the number of sets or limit the RIR as well. Um, so for instance, I was training Clarissa this morning. What day is it? Wednesday? Yeah, this morning. Yeah. Yeah. So she had, she has deadlifted like 100 kilos or 105, I think. And she had 85 kilos and she was going to get 12 reps done. And she did it in three sets. But I think she went like five, four, three or something. I capped her RIR at two. Um, but again, it's just a way of, it's a way of letting people regulate their, the number of reps they do per set so that the per set effort doesn't get too high while still having a good gauge on total volume. And for lower volume strength training work it works really well and then for higher volume stuff it works well as well if you if you sort of let them self-select intensity i think too and it's also it also works with um be not having to overdo it with too many sets like if you do the first set to 10 at rpe 10 mm. your next set you're probably going to get like half the reps and then half the reps again yeah whereas if you leave two in the tank you might get just one less and then yeah. one less again yeah um so i've used that too i think it's really good the actual I want to say that the first person that exposed me to it was um, was Will Lee from Adonis because he, in his bench press programming, was doing that. And what he would do, he would give you a couple of top sets that were like um, that were hardish. So he might give you like a five at eighty percent, and maybe like two sixes at seventy five percent or something. 
and then at 70% he'd have like accumulate 20 or accumulate 15 or whatever it happens to be and you could just do it across however many sets it took um, he did that as a way of like making sure you could get in your volume but it was always in the really sub-max ranges when he used it for main lifts and I quite liked it but I didn't see a very I didn't see a use for it that I thought was elegant in the context of the programs I wrote until more recently in the ways I described it. I think he's the first person I saw. Yeah? Where did you learn it? I don't know where I learned it from, actually. I think I just did it once. <laughs> just came from nothing. But I also... I used to do it with um, more like single joint machine work, like leg extension, leg curl kind of things. And yeah. it would be like, do 50 reps. I do that to people for calf raises sometimes. Yeah. I say um, like, in three sets, get 55 reps out or something for yeah. calf raises, which is heinous, but yeah. it works. Yeah. Um, but yeah, now now I'm more use it for someone who's like an introduction to that exercise. Yeah, like I think glute hammer is probably the best um, example of that. Pull ups is okay too, but I think the one that we spoke about earlier was is probably better. I like how you just created it though. It was nothing, and then suddenly it was there. Well, I, I, I it wasn't influenced by anyone, but it's just like let there. It's be just reps. like do this many reps. He spake. It's just like do this many reps. How just... good is the word spake for like spoke? I don't. I actually don't understand how it works. I think is, it's like very old English. Is that actually a word? Yeah, absolutely. Pretty Shakespearean. Shake, um, <coughs> spake. Yeah, maybe. Shake, spake. Shake and spake. Shake and spake. That's what he used to say before he fist bumped his bro, William Shakespeare. Um, yeah. So that was that was total reps. I don't really have much more to say about that, um, except for if you use Prilipin's chart to inform the total number of reps you should do in intensity zones in powerlifting, I think you're wrong. I'll just leave that hanging. Yeah, that's fair. Don't at me. <laughs> Don't at me. <laughs> at me, I love attention, but you're wrong if you do that. It's silly. Weightlifting isn't powerlifting. Don't it's at me. It's like a speed strength sport, so you can do more work at higher intensities and it's not the same. Yeah, and you should do probably more volume of powerlifting at lower intensities and less at higher intensities. Don't at me. And sumos for cowards, don't at me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not a real lift. Um Okay, last one. This is actually just mad fun because we're talking about getting your arms jacked is mechanical drop sets. And again, I definitely want to attribute at least half of this to Elite FTS, but also probably T-Nation and also probably just watching like YouTube bodybuilders work out when I was like 16 and thinking it was cool. Um, so actually, like, you know who I reckon wrote a bit about this? Shit, what's his name? Um, Bryant, Josh Bryant. Because he, you know him? Okay, he's like a, he's the strength and powerlifting coach from the States um, who wrote a book called Jailhouse Strong. I think he wrote another one called Pig Iron or something. I never really read it. But he had like a whole bunch of fun bare bones training routines. And the Jailhouse Strong one, a lot of it was like training methods designed for people who had limited equipment and like limited ability to progress loads. So he was trying to impose different styles of overload. And so mechanical drop sets were... Um, were something that he said were popular in prison culture whether or not it's true because say you only had one set of dumbbells and if you went to get another one some dude from a rival gang would like fucking clob you in the head with it you could you could create a hard workout using them so the first one that I did that I thought was sick and you know it is elevator curls um, it's what I call them it's where you get a, a bench like an adjustable bench and you put it on an incline and you do you do incline dumbbell curls close to failure then you go to a high incline dumbbell curl close to failure then seated then standing and then into crossbody hammer curls and you just do it all capping the first few sets at like 
two RIR and then just pump them out to failure once you're doing crossbody hammer curls. Pump of the gods. What do you reckon, Alex? Yeah, we used to do these at Willoughby Fitness first with Doug all the time. Yeah, it was so good. And Mira would give us like five sets of arms and I'd just turn it into a couple of sets of elevated curls. Yeah, it's classic. And I got the absolute pythons. And Mira was always like, man, I've never seen this work so good. And I just winked. And then your bench was really strong. Bench was shit, yeah. Um, but another one that I another one that I did for triceps, I also I definitely learned this from Elite FTS, and I learned it from a guy called Justin Harris, who was this giant bodybuilder dude. Um, he also was big into BCAA's before BCAA's got popular. Like I'm talking 2005 BCAA's, and he was one of the guys who was having like eight to one leucine to the other two BCAA's ratio. It was sick. Um, and he did overhead tricep extensions with a cable, right? But when you couldn't do them pulling your hands apart, he would then say, put your fists together and go out together, then swim them out wide and go back in, right? Does that make sense, Alex? Yeah, like a, it? like a semicircle kind of. Yeah, and then when you couldn't do that anymore, you just go out and in together. And, the, he, and then when you can't do that anymore, you go straight down. That'd be peaceful. <laughs> I never thought of the doing that. The fourth one. Um, but... But his rationale had something to do with the different heads of the triceps fatiguing at different rates because they were exposed to more or less tension in the initial exercise. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, but yeah, did that. Also pump of the gods. So if you want the ultimate pump of the gods, you go elevators straight into them and you won't be able to walk out the gym door. We had we had two that I did for arms when I first started training with rugby and these are actually written in our program to do. Okay. I'm which is so great. Ready. Yeah. So the first one was for bicep, was just 21s. Yeah, so you, you do great. you do the top half of the curl, then the bottom half of the curl, and then the full curl. Seven, yeah. seven, seven. Three yeah. sets of twenty-one. Mad pump. Have you ever done twenty-one on the leg press? Yes, I have actually. How, that is trash. It's so hard. So hard. <laughs> yeah. Um, the other one we did was twenty-ones for triceps. Yeah. Which was seven pause skull crushes. Yeah. Then seven regular skull crushes. And then seven like close grip benches with massive tuck. Yeah, I used to do them when I was training in my mate Mickey's garage with Lockie. And we would do skull crushes into close grip bench on the chest. And, and your partner like, would lean over you and push down on it so that you would hit failure within 10 of the close grip bench. So like they'd add resistance. Yeah. Does that make sense? And then we would often add in like diamond push ups straight after the close grip. just for, And you'd only be able to get like three. I remember when we did a crazy arms thing with Doug at one stage. I think I was going on holidays the day after or something, and he made us do, he made us do something like overhead tricep extensions into diamond push-ups, into wall push-ups or something. And it was oh. so silly. We were standing in the corner near the bubbler at, the, at Willoughby doing like push-ups against the wall, and it was just embarrassing when people came to have a drink. <laughs> but it was awesome. <laughs> um, do you want to hear my other tricep? About, well, I got one more. Running the rack. Oh, mate, I've run dumb, the rack so many times. The dumbbell curl run the rack. I've you start done it on, on like, lateral raises. That's a great one to do it Start on, like, 20s, yeah. and you do, like, 6. Yeah. And then you go 17s, you do, like, 6 or 8. And then you go, like, 15s, you do, like, 8. And then 12s, you can probably do, like, 6 or 8 again. And yeah. then, like, 10s, and then, like, 6s. Mate, done it all. Done mate. it with lateral raises. That was, that was actually the one it was great for. Because, like, you could probably do five good lateral raises with, like, 15, 16 kilos. But you wouldn't be able to do many 15, sets. Fifteen, sixteen kilos for lateral raises for five reps. You no don't reckon way. you could do that? Not good ones. I reckon I could. Look at these things. Yeah, I can, bar- I can barely see them. <laughs> yeah, um, I reckon you could, but then they'd get trash immediately. So I've done run the rack um, lateral raises. I used to do them when I was at Willoughby as well. Sometimes 
Uh, that might be where my shoulder dysfunction came from. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> but no, my other drop set for triceps, this was another one I definitely learned from Elite FTS. Shout out Dave Tate. Um, was dumbbell skull crushers into rolling tricep extensions. You know them? So rolling tricep extensions, if you don't know them, you lower the dumbbell like it's a skull crusher. Then you let your elbow, once your hand's like by your ear, you let your elbow kick back behind your head. So you get slightly more stretching the long head of your tricep. Then you sort of roll your elbow towards your chest, which is why they're called rolling, and extend your tricep forcefully. So it's sort of like a more explosive motion of a skull crusher. It's like a cheating skull crusher. So I do them into tape press. And if you don't know what tape press is, it's where you hold the dumbbells kind of like you're at the top of a dumbbell bench press, and then you let them collapse in towards your midline. So your humerus basically stays pointing towards the ceiling. And then your radius and ulna are just sitting across your chest, like sort of parallel to your chest. Um, and so they all, well, that fatigues slightly different um, parts of the tricep. I think it's a completely different head. I don't know. I don't really know my tricep anatomy that well. I have tiny triceps. But yeah, I, I've done them and I've given them to clients as well for fun. And they are sick. What do you reckon, Alex? Yeah, that's a good one. The other one that Doug and I used to do in the old um, North Sydney PCYC days yeah. was the um, the decline bench. Yeah. Sorry, not the decline bench. Close grip bench on a Smith machine. Yep. And you start with 80 kilos. Yep. And, but you'd use three tens on each side. Yeah. And so then you go you 80 and then you go 60 and then you go 40. Yeah, that's sick. They were rough. You know what's actually good? And I thought this was the dumbest thing ever is the assisted pull-up machine. You get the pad that you put your knees on for that or the assisted dip slash pull-up machine. Fold the dip arms out like you're going to do pull-ups and then you sort of bend your chest over it so your chest is pointing at the floor and you're in T-spine flexion and you grip it on the outside, right, with your hands. So it's like you're holding a shoebox to your chest and you roll over and then you do tricep extensions down against that. Oh, yeah. And it's like, it's like a dip tricep extension hybrid and if you keep your elbows tucked and control it down, it is like crazy how good it feels. Um, I did that actually the other day with my mate Locke and I thought it was the broiest thing ever but it was so good. Like, crazy good exercise. I haven't really put it in a program for a client yet because I don't want I don't want people to be advertising me the trainer through that exercise but it's sick. If you think you're something cheeky to do, try that one. Do you have any more good ones for like delts? Like I used to do the... You start with a front raise and then you go to a lateral raise. Do you mean a six-way? No, no, no. Sorry. Front raise into lateral... No, you go lateral raise into front raise. Nah, front raise is stronger. Yeah. So, yeah, you, so you should do it second. True. Yeah. No. True. Dumbbell six-ways is what you're thinking of. No, so I'm, you go, I'm not. I'm asking you. Oh, well, dumbbell six-ways is what I've done. So I've got to get this correct. I think you go out in a lateral raise then while holding them out in lateral raise position you go to the front so I'm definitely, the not, front I'm raise definitely position. not thinking about this then from there you raise them overhead Ugh. then back down yeah so it's three motions up three motions down that's why they call it a six that's rep. terrible that's yeah. why your shoulders are fucked well yeah peaceful I've done them <laughs> um, do I have any other good ones for side delts um, no nah, not really I've like Lean away lateral raises are great, so you can get more stretch through the through the delt. That's oh, a good, good one. one is um those uh fuck you know when you lie down and you do like an inverted row. Yep. Where you just change the angle as it gradually gets harder. Yeah, you walk your feet That's off. That's a good one. That's a good drop set. Um, or actually, here's a good um here's a good drop set for delts 
that works pretty well is you can go lateral raises into dumbbell upright rows to the nipple. Um, so when you basically hit failure in the lateral raise, you do that and you get a little bit more um, side delt stimulation. That's a good one. And then front raise. <laughs> yeah, sure, Alex. Then, everyone can do front raises. And then push-ups. Um, <laughs> yeah, sure. Why not? No, you do that and then you could probably finish with standing overhead dumbbells. I feel like you can add push-ups to everything, to all of these. Squat to push-up. Yeah, 100%. That's basically CrossFit 101 and then you go toast a bar. Then giving pull-ups on the minute. Yeah, Banded. 10 of them. <laughs> Reverse with <banded>. change. <laughs> yeah, no, that's. Did you, see, did you see Stanger's Instagram post last night? No. Hang on, I'm gonna read it out. This is so funny. Okay, to the people, Alex has his phone out, looking up Stanger, In whose Stang. actual name is Stang. In Stangram, <laughs> yeah. if you guys want to follow him. Yeah. He goes. He's doing pause, feet up, close grip bench. Yeah. And he goes pause, feet up, close grip out variation. Me, I dare you. <laughs> and then I replied hang on then I reply with three count pause feet up close grip two board press with chains <laughs> that is that variation <laughs> I love the idea of feet up bench press because it's like lie down and then lie down some more it's so good it is but it is actually a really good exercise there's another one you could do as a mechanical drop set okay all the people hypertrophy bench press training listen up we go feet up bench press into feet down bench press while holding the bar. What do you reckon, Alex? No. <laughs> Everybody under my coaching is getting that next <laughs> next block. All right, I'm done. Are you done? Yeah, I'm done. All right, peace out. That was weekly weights for the week. Will Berkman, PT. Alex Hayes, don't contact me. Um, hopefully, Eric Helms on eventually. If not, we'll be back to talk more <laughs> about training arms <laughs> at PCYC. <laughs> okay, peace out.